Okay, and we are live. Um, today's dedication, learning dedicated in memory of Dvorah Fega Bat Shmuel Zichronal and Moshe Ben Shoshana Zichronal Avracha and Yebodol Lachayim Toivim Varuchim for the full shalem of Yaakov and Penina and Menachem Mendel Ben Sarabatya and uh, I have my personal dedication to Rafu um, Shlema for Razel Bas Miriam and Sterna Mezani Simcha Bas Sivia. And let's also say a memory of Hirsch. Tzvi Hirsch Ben. Father. Ben Yeshua. Okay. Rafu Shlema? Rafu Shlema. Okay. Okay, so uh, today's title is Logical Faith, Having a Thorough Relationship with God. Okay. So, um, you're new, Yosef, so I'll just share with you. The way it works over here is that from the Torah portion, we take one topic and we take a mystical discourse that the Rebbe of Blessed Memory gave on it. Then we take that discourse and we pick a modern day issue that we can apply it to. We open up with the modern day issue, we discuss the mystical concepts, and then we come back to the modern day issue. And this way, what you're doing here is, you're learning the mystical dimension of the Parsha, and you're making it applicable to your daily life. That's really what the goal of Hasidus is. Okay? Okay, so what's the modern day issue? Our modern day issue for this lecture is, what are the ground rules in having a relationship with God? What are the ground rules? So I'm going to explain myself. More than ever, this has become a modern day issue. For in truth, ever since man was born, and ever since the capacity of knowledge has evolved, the human knowledge has evolved, there's always been this struggle with faith. Faith and intellect, faith and science, however you want to um, uh, call it. However, the question that science of old struggled with was the actual existence of God. Is there a God or is there not a God? However, I would say that today with the development of quantum physics and so much, and so much more unprecedented technology of scientific exploration, the modern day issue, I think, has for many shifted from the if God exists to the how to have a relationship with the God that exists. Okay, so just understand that this lecture is not going to be discussing any proof if there's a God. That's not where I believe today's struggle lies. Thus, this lecture will be targeting on the majority of people whose belief in God at its lowest is agnostic. I'm not here to deal with atheism right now. And for those who as a prelude to religion want to establish a spiritual relationship with God. Okay? So we're not talking about those who, uh, who define their relationship with God only with the actions of religion. We're not talking about those who are busy fighting that there is no God. We're talking about somewhere from the agnostic to those who are looking to a prelude, a spiritual foundation in their relationship with God, which drives whatever religious, um, uh, you know, organized religion they're going to have. But we're talking about that pre, like it says in the Talmud, before you say Vahayem Shemoah, to accept my commandments, first say Shema and accept me. What does it mean to accept God? That's what we're really focusing on today. 
Okay, so we're going to look at the at the Vahoya and Shema, and if you will follow in my paths, you will listen to my ways. That's already after the Shema. That's the second paragraph in the Shema. We're not talking about that. Neither are we talking about people who don't even relate to the Shema. So we're not talking about the atheists, and we're not talking about those who their entire relationship with God is only the organized religion. We're talking about those who are going to embrace the first paragraph of the Shema which God says, according to Talmud, accept me, and then accept my laws. What does that mean to accept me? What is the spiritual foundation of having a relationship with God? Okay? Okay. So, what I'm looking for in this lecture is primarily a balance. What is the balance I'm looking for? For a balance and a mutual inclusivity between two thoughts. A God that I can fully understand cannot be my God. I can't have a God that's just based on my understanding. Because a God that I understand is not infinitely greater than me if I can fully understand Him. Yet on the other hand, I need to know what it is that I believe in. I believe. What do you believe in? I don't know. I believe. I believe. So we're trying to make a balance between understanding that my knowing God can't be complete because if I can fully understand God then he can't be my God at best he's not infinitely greater than I am if I can fully understand him and on the other hand just to believe in God and not know what it means I believe in God what do I believe in we're trying to make a balance between the two okay so this lecture is based primarily on a mimer that the Rebbe delivered on this Shabbos in 1965, exploring the mystical secrets behind the statute of the red cow, the Paraduma. This week's Torah portion is Zotachukat, and it starts with the commandment of the red cow. So let's get some introduction. Now we know what the modern day issue is. The modern day issue is just to have a real balanced and thorough relationship with God. Faith and knowing. Find a balance because if not, we don't have a thorough relationship with God. Believing in what you don't know is not thorough. Knowing is not thorough when you talk about an infinite God. Okay, so that's clear. We understand the modern day issue. Okay, let's go now to the introduction. What is, just practically speaking, what is the red cow? What is the commandment about the red cow? So I put a link here in the notes and you'll have it emailed. You can just click on the link and you'll get over there the laws, what it means. It has to be fully red here. It can't even have two black hairs or any other color. It has to be only red here. All those details is not what I want to discuss here. You have a link. You can look it up exactly what the process is. The third day, the seventh day, the sprinkling. How's the sprinkling? What do you do? Who does it? What I'm looking to do is just give the pertinent main themes of the red cow for our lecture now what i want to share with you is there's two parts of the red cow there's the preparing the red cow process in other words we have to end up from this cow into a mixture that we sprinkle on the person so there's the process of preparing and doing the red cow and then there's the actual sprinkling process we're focusing on the preparation process okay so let's talk about just what goes on here so number one just that you know something mind-boggling the red cow processed but the paraduma is the only sacrifice called by the torah kachim to be holy it's actually called a carbon chatos it's a sin offering 
and yet this is the only one that has a sin offering which is completely whoa I'm missing all my second pages of my notes is everyone missing second pages to notes this is two no this is three oh my. no no they're all they were all printed wrong okay if do you mind just tell Marcella that they were printed wrong we're missing every second every second page okay and I have over here a picture that I wanted to show you so that it can make sense so yeah all right anyway let's go about the introduction so the introduction is that number one the red cow is called kachim it's called something which is sanctified which is holy number two it's called a carbon chatas a sin offering now just by having those two names it should have to be done where in the holy temple you're not allowed to bring sacrifices anywhere outside of the holy temple and yet this is the only one that's called the kachim and it's called a chatas and it's called a chatas la hashem for god and in its entirety it's done outside of the holy temple so there is another sacrifice which is used but that's a different thank you there is a different sacrifice which is called the Seira Mishaleach. It's a Mishaleach. Even Yom Kippur, if you remember, you sent one, you had two, two um, animals. One was made with the Goral for Hashem, a sacrifice. And the other one was made as Lazazel. You sent it to the cliff. So number one, that isn't called Kachim. That isn't called a Chatos, number one. Number two, that started off in the Holy Temple. And from there you sent it. It had to be waiting there, prepared, and from there you sent it. But what's interesting here is that this is the only sacrifice which is completely outside of the Holy Temple, which makes this sacrifice entirely illogical. Okay? That's number one. Number two, the process of this, of this um, red cow was that after you slaughtered it, you then fully burnt it to ashes. There is no part of this sacrifice which went onto the altar. It was completely burnt to ashes. After that, together with three other ingredients, you went and you put it into Mayim Chaim El Keli. You put it into water. Thus, this sacrifice is actually one of the secrets in which we say fire and water. The ashes you put in the water. So you have fire and water. Ashes is the fire part, you shall burn it, and then you shall place it in water. Fire and water. Now what's so special about fire and water, other than Agam made a beautiful thing in Dizinkov called Eshomayim, there's something else. And what is that? That is that fire and water in mystical terminology is called Ratsui Vishuv. Ratsui Vishuv in English is ebb and flow. Ebb and flow. For example, if you look, for example, on a flame on a wick, if you look very carefully, you'll always see that the flame jumps off the wick, comes back to the wick, jumps off the wick, comes back to the wick. The definition of life is to breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. That is all a reflection of the way Hashem created the universe, that everything should be Ratsui Vishuv. According to Kabbalah, everything, just like when you go to sleep at night, 
Ratsui, you wake back up, Shuv. In other words, the way Kabbalah has that Hashem set up the world, that it gives the life, but then it needs to be rejuvenated. Gives and rejuvenated. I'm sorry? Correct. And it's the only way that it continues to, to work. Now, what happens is that this Ratsivishuv, besides everything else, is also at the core of our relationship with God. Journeying to cleave with Him, coming down to do what He said. Journeying to cleave with Him, coming down to do what He said. In other words, the soul, like the flame, wants to jump off the wick. It wants to return back into the mother flame. However, it's told you need to be here to do God's work. Ratsui Vishuv. Correct. Ebb and flow, running and returning. Okay? Now, with this being said, interesting, I don't have the notes here, but that is, we'll see. There's just a lot of details here, but uh, we'll give it the best we can. So then, another introduction. The, f- the second verse, in other words, the first verse of a commandment is usually, and God spoke to Moses, speak to the children, right? By David Hashem Moshe Lehmer. So the first verse that actually talks about this commandment says something very interesting. Zot chukat ha-Torah. This is the statute of the Torah. So let's give another introduction. The 613 commandments are divided in three categories. What are the three categories of the 613 commandments? One is called Eidut. Thank you, Blanca. One is called Eidut. One is called Mishpatim. And, no, I have two. You gave me two. You gave me two twos. One is called Mishpatim. And the other one is called Chukim. Okay? Now, what are the difference between the two? Eidut, um, if you don't mind, I'm just missing four and six. She can bring it, thank you. So just that we have an understanding here. Edut comes from with Ed, a witness. He gives testimony. What does that mean? There are commandments that all what they're about is to testify. They're a testimony to the miracles that God did for us. For example, Passover, all the holidays are testimonies. Eating matzah is a testimony. Sitting in the sukkah is a testimony. It's all testimonies to what God did to us when he took us out of Egypt, the Exodus. So that's one category called Eidut. Then there's another category called Mishpatim. Mishpatim means judgment, which basically means if you use your better judgment, you'll know what this is. For example, thank you, Marcel. For example, thou shall not kill. Right? Right there you have a commandment that makes sense. It's actually so far that the Talmud tells us that the Mishpatim category, for example, modesty, honesty, we would learn it out of animals. It says we'd learn modesty out of a cat. We'd learn honesty out of an ant. An ant will not touch any morsel that it sends another ant touched already. So that's judgments. Then there's another category which is called chukim. Chukim are statutes. They're the ones that make absolutely no sense according to human rationale. So we have the edut, mishpatim, and chukim. They're right there on page two. Okay? Now... The opening of the Torah tells us you should know that the category of the red heifer is a chok. It's a statute. It's not logical. Now, in general, there's a question whether all the laws of purity and purity are logical or they're all statutes. But this one, 
is specifically a statute. Now the question is, why does it say Zot Chukat HaTorah? This is the statute of the Torah, which seems to tell me that this is the quintessential statute. Of all the statutes that there are, and Rashi gives... You mean the, that, the important no, what it means is the quintessential, it's the ultimate chok. In other words, there are a whole category of chukim, but amongst all of them, which is the chok, the quintessential statute, which is absolute, not highest, the one that makes absolutely no logical sense, is this one. And it's interesting because I quote to you two things that the Medrash says on this week's Torah portion. One of them is, and I quote it to you, I'll read it to you directly. God told Moses all, taught Moses all the impurities and its purification. When he reached a portion of say to the Kohanim, the laws of impurity of a dead body, if you're in a room with a dead body or you touch a dead body, you become impure. Moses said that's considered the ultimate impurity. A dead body is the via votatuma. That is the ultimate. And it's simply speaking, because life is goodness, and where did death come from? Sin. Right? Adam and Eve. That's where life. So that's why death is the ultimate. Now, Moses said, when he, when he learned the laws of the impurity, God taught him the laws in the, of the impurity of what happens when someone touches a dead body. So he said, Master of the universe, if one becomes impure with this, what will be his purification? God didn't answer. God didn't answer Moses that there's a purification here, which in every other impurity, he right away taught him the impurity and the purification. Here, here he didn't answer him. So, so Moshe Rabbeinu nichmuru panav. It became ashen. Now, when he came up to this Torah portion, from Leviticus until this Torah portion, Moshe Rabbeinu didn't know the answer. When he came to this Torah portion, and all of a sudden he's introducing, Hashem is introducing the laws of the red heifer to Moses, all of a sudden he says to him, he says to him, this is the purification. You shall take from the ashes and put it with the water, with the, with the hyssop and with the cedar. Moshe Ben said to Hashem, Master of the universe, is this then a purification? What kind of purification is this? The mikveh makes sense. You immerse the person in the mikveh and everything. What, what's going on here? What, what is this all about? What makes it a sacrifice if it's outside? None of it goes to the altar. Look what God answers him. God said to him, Moses, it is a statute and a decree that I decreed and no creature can understand my decrees. All of a sudden about this one is the only one where Hashem says no human being can understand this. By the way, the Medrash says when it says, when the, the Pasuk says, you should take unto you a paraduma, from here we learned out that Hashem told him, you will explain it to, no one else will understand it. Now who is this no one else? Let's go to another Medrash. Solomon, the wisest of all men. Solomon said, upon all of these statues I have stood. That means I got to the, I got to the depth of it. I understood it. However, and the portion of the red cow, I have researched, I asked, and I examined, and I said, and here's a, a verse from Ecclesiastes, I will become wise, but it was far from me. As much as Shlomo Melech tried to understand the paraduma, he couldn't. Every other chok he understood. The paraduma he could not understand. Thus we now understand that the red cow is the quintessential statute.
that even Solomon couldn't understand it, even Moses couldn't understand it until God said, you, lecha, you, I'll give it to him. Okay? Now, now that we understand that this is the quintessential, we understand why it says, Zot chukat ha-Torah. Of all, the, of all the statutes in the Torah, which is the one that is truly illogical in its entirety, all the other ones, you can grasp it. You see King Solomon fully grasp it. We can grasp it. The Rambam writes that we have to come out and learn something from even everything which Hashem says, we have to learn something from. Because ultimately, they, you can grasp it. There are just some details and some questions which are illogically, it's just we can't answer them. So if they, you could have some type of intellectual grasp on it, then it's not an absolute chok. It's not an absolute illogical statute. But that which we cannot grasp at all, Moshe Rabbeinu says, what kind of purification is this? What, what is this? That is zot chukata Torah. This is a full-blown, the only full-blown statute we have zero understanding of. Okay, let's go further. It, it'll, it'll unfold. There's another thing I want to say here. Besides saying that this is the quintessential um, statute, the ultimate illogical commandment to the human rationale, there's something else we learn out from here. Zot chukata Torah means that this is the general rule from which everything else is a detail. If I say this is the Chukata Torah, the entire 630 commandments, 612 of them are details to the general rule. Which is the general rule? Zot Chukata Torah. What is it about the Paraduma that encompasses the entire 613 commandments and all the other 612 are details of this one rule. So we're taught, we're taught about this, that the reason is because all 613 mitzvot are all to be able to balance out the ebb and flow relationship that we have with God. All of Torah mitzvot is to keep that healthy heartbeat in out in out up down up down yearning coming back and doing yearning coming back and doing now being that according to kabbalah the entire torah is built on that binary code i should say the entire torah the entire 613 commandments are built on that binary code of ebb and flow to have a healthy, you know, like the uh, flat line is not good. It's got an ebb flow, ebb flow, ebb flow. So, correct. So, therefore, because, exactly. So, therefore, because the 613 commandments are all about the ebb and flow, now we understand why this is the general rule. Why? Because according to Kabbalah, every other mitzvah has a, a distinction. This one is the ebb, this one is the flow. Which one within it itself has both the ebb and the flow? The paraduma. Completely consumed by fire, ebb, put it into water, flow. Thus the ebb and flow of all the mitzvot, really the quintessential ebb and flow is the red cow. 
And from here, all the other mitzvahs is one part of a detail. One's this type of ebb, one's that type of ebb, one's a flow, not an ebb, one's an ebb, not a flow. They're all details. But what is the zot chukat haTorah? Is this? So we have here two things which seem to not fit together. One thing was saying zot chukat haTorah. You should know that this is extraordinary. There's nothing like it. There's nothing in common between this mitzvah and all the other mitzvot. Why? Because all the other mitzvot, even the statutes, have some logical grasp. This one is absolutely illogical to the human mind. That means that this mitzvah stands separated from all the other mitzvot. On the other hand, we're saying that this mitzvah is the rule from which everyone is a detail. It's like the mother of all mitzvot. Why? Because it has the ebb and flow. Make up your mind. What do the words, this is the statute of the Torah teach us? Does it teach us that this is isolated? It is the only one that King Solomon and even King Moshe couldn't figure out on their own? Or does it teach me, no, this is the mother from which all the children come. This is the general rule from which everything else is a detail. And deeper, what is the common line between it being irrational and it being ebb and flow? We've got to bring it all together. And we're going to bring it all together. That's what the Rebbe is doing in this mimer. Okay? So, now that we understand the paradox, we understand the two sides. One is the absolute irrational. And on the other side, it is the mother from which all other mitzvot are only details, the ebb and the flow. We have to understand how that coincides. Now, let's go on and start the lecture. Okay. So, again, I'm going to list you the mystical concepts that the Rebbe talks about in the Mimer. So, if we can understand these mystical concepts and they line up and all of a sudden they become one beautiful big puzzle, then we can understand to come back to the answer to our questions and most importantly how can you and I run a balanced life with God how can we have a balanced thorough relationship with God between faith and logic obedience and understanding okay so here are the uh, the list okay we have here five mystical concepts we're going to need to cover today number one chakika engraved number two engraved through and through the signature ring Number three, the concept of will, obedience, and logic. Number four, the rule within all its details. And then the last one, the ebb and flow of obedience and logic. And now let the amazement of Hasidus begin. To understand the mystical secret of the quintessential chok, we're going to need to understand where the word chok comes from. Chok means a statute, right? Now, the word chok also carries mystically another root, which is the word chakika, chakuk. What does that mean? Engraved. So we need to understand that by understanding the definition of engraved, we're going to understand the definition of what makes a statute a statute. Now, what does it mean to be engraved? To understand that, we're going to understand that the Torah was given in two forms. There is the written letters, which is what Yosefet Torah is. The five books of Moses were given. No, not Torah Shabbat. No, 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 no. Before. 
Moshe Rabbeinu wrote the Sefer Torah. And before he passed away, he actually wrote 13 Sefer Torahs to give one to each tribe. When he wrote the Torah, like our Torah today, that's ink on parchment. Now, ink on parchment means there's two different items. There's parchment and there's ink, and the ink sticks to the parchment. However, the ink could come off the parchment. Number one. Number two, the spot on the parchment where the ink is, is covered. The ink covers the parchment. Let's talk about engraved letters. Where do we have in the Torah engraved letters? The Shnei Luchot Abrit, the two tablets of the covenant. Over there, it says Chorus Alaluchos. It was engraved. God engraved the letters. What's the difference? The difference is that engraved letters, there are no two objects that are connected as one. There's no ink and parchment. There's no letters and stone. The letters are part and parcel of the stone. They're engraved within the stone. Thus, they can never be separated. And B, the letters don't hide and cover the stone. Unlike the ink which covers the parchment. Now, this all has mystical meanings. Okay? So, what I wanted to share with you is part of the mystical meanings. When we talk about the written letter, what does that represent? Everything has mystical representation to us. When we talk about the, we're on page four. When we talk about written letters, what we're talking about is that there is the essence will of God, and then there are the mitzvot. Now, written letters, even though the mitzvot are one with the, with the will of God, but because they're very specific, and they have their reasoning, thus we can say that the letters, the mitzvot, cover the will of God. The mystical representation of this is the vessels of the world of Atzilut. The world of Atzilut is the spiritual world of unity and divinity. The vessels and the light are both one. But they're one like the written letters. Because the vessel is a vessel, not light. The light is a light and not vessel. The vessel shines into the light until they become one. But nevertheless, they're two. And on top of that, the vessel, by definition, creates some type of opaqueness to the light. Thus, when the mitzvahs are represented in Kabbalah by being the vessel letters, the four letters of God's name, is where all 613 commandments are hidden. But the letters are vessels in which the light shines. Thus, when you talk about the mitzvot, as they are the vessels that house the will of God, they're not one with the will of God. They're the vessels that house the will of God. Thus, the mitzvot on that letter, on that level, you cannot say they are God. You can't say the letters are God. Rather, it says, respect and honor the mitzvot, for they are my emissaries. And yes, an emissary is like a continuation of the person that's sent. Over here, we're not talking about person, we're talking about God. Thus, when you see someone doing a mitzvah, the law is you have to stand. When you do a mitzvah, you have to stand. Stand, stand up. You have to honor it. But that mitzvah, which is the emissary of God, it is the conduit of God's will, that is the vessel which houses God's will. 
And thus ultimately the mitzvah is not God and God is not the mitzvah. The essence will is not on that level. That's the way the mitzvah descends into being two and not one. We'll talk about that more in a minute. What does that mean with the person observing the mitzvah? Here's where we're going to get into two major topics. Why does a Jew do a mitzvah? Let's talk about the mitzvah that's logical. Thou shalt not kill. Why doesn't, <clears throat> why doesn't the Jew kill? One thing is, it's inhumane, I understand. Man was created in the image of God. How can you kill another human being who was created in the image of God? Life, the sanctity of life, the value of life. It overrides almost all the commandments. Only three commandments it doesn't override. Right? Idolatry, idolatry, and, and murder. Other than that, if someone tells you, eat this piece of pork or I'm going to kill you, you eat the pork. If someone tells you, kill him or I'll kill you, then you, you have to be willing to die. But this notion that a person does a mitzvah, why does a person do a mitzvah? To understand this, we need to understand what is the pintalayid. What is the core essence of the Jewish soul? The core essence of the Jewish soul is that it wants to do what God wants. Not a why, not a reasoning. The reason to all mitzvot is that it is the will of God. Thus, when a Jew does a mitzvah, because it's logical, that's actually an opaque covering to who he or she really is. Because who he or she really is has nothing to do with whether they appreciate, they understand, or they agree with the mitzvah or not. From my purest essence and from your purest essence, the fact that God wants it, is the entire reason of why we do it. Where does that express itself? That expresses itself in obedience. Why am I doing it? I'm obedient. God said to do it, I'll do it. That's where you actually see what a Jew is really all about. However, when a Jew does it because he understands it, he understands how great this is, he understands how beautiful it is, he understands what he accomplishes spiritually and physically, and Hashem Achad, and all the intentions, the Kabbalistic Yichudim, that, believe it or not, is an opaque covering to who the Jew truly is. Because who the Jew truly is, is God wants, I do. Thus the written letters is actually the representation of doing mitzvot because they make sense. On one hand, I'm aligning my mind with God's will. It's united. But on the other hand, that's not who I am. The fact that you get smarter as you grow up, the fact that there are no two people that have the same intellect tells me that the core essence of the soul is not intellect. If the core essence of the soul was intellect, we'd all be equal. And we wouldn't evolve. Essence doesn't evolve. It is. Thus, we need to say that there's something deeper than the wisdom, understanding, and knowledge of the soul. And what that is, is the pure essence will. What is the pure essence will of the soul? I want to do what God wants me to do. Period. 
Thus the written letter is when the intellect, i.e. ink, covers the parchment, i.e. my pure essence will to just do what God wants. Thus in Kabbalah the whiteness of the parchment represents the will of God. The forms of the letters represents the intellect and the knowledge and the reasoning of God. Thus it's interesting that the letters actually darken the parchment. My doing something because I intellectually appreciate it denies the fact that at my core essence I am obedient to God's will. Does that make sense? Okay? You, okay, let, let's let no really let's understand this. If I'm doing what God wants me to do because He wants me to do it, then I'm working from my core essence. Because my core essence doesn't care. Don't tell me why. You want me to do it, God? He nani. My core my core essence is He nani. You want? I'm obedient. I do. Oh, one second. Now I understand why you want me to do it. So I'm doing it not only because you want me to do it, I'm doing it because I understand why I should be doing it. Ah, that's a step down. Because I'm not doing it with pure obedience. God, your thy will be done, not mine. Because now I aligned it that it should be my will too. Because I understand why God doesn't want me to eat non-kosher. I understand why God doesn't want me to murder. I understand why God wants me to pray. Thus the understanding is, is beautiful. But it's like letters that cover the pure whiteness of the parchment. What is engraved letters? Engraved letters is where the letters and the stone in which it's engraved is one. In other words, these are the commandments that are not testimonies. They're not judgments. My intellect does not get in my way because I don't truly understand why God has me doing it. Thus, the fact that I'm doing it is an expression of my pintaliyid. It's an expression of my obedience. God, you want, I do. Hineni. If I'm doing it because I understand, that's not hineni. Hineni means I'm here because you want me to be here. I'm doing this because you want me to do this. Thus, when we talk about the engraved letters, where it's not ink on parchment, it's not wisdom covering obedience, Rather, it's engraved within the stone. That's the definition of statutes. Thus, we can say that the written letters are the testimonies and the judgments, intellect on will, while the statutes is engraved. There is nothing on the will. It's within the will of God. That's all it is. On a Kabbalistic level, that talks about a realm where there isn't vessels covering lights. Here we're talking about, I'll just give you for tech stuff. The name is, the two realms is, Supernal Crown, which is higher than Atzilut, and Ak, Adam Kadmain, which means primordial man. Just, I'm just giving you names in Kabbalah. You study about it, you learn exactly what the difference is between the two. But over there, there isn't vessels housing the light. It's a different dimension. Because if it's vessels housing light, then it's letters covering parchment. It's intellect tainting obedience.
Okay? Here is where a Jew does a mitzvah and I have no idea why I'm doing it. Thus my doing it isn't something which is imposed upon, oh, I understand why I'm doing it. Oh, why do I do this? I'll tell you why I do this. Because it simply makes sense. Because if you understand what God is telling me to do. And, 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 no, 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 no. doesn't make sense. I'm doing it because the pentelier within me knows only one word. Hineni. Thy will be done. That's it. Period. End story. Now we need to get a little deeper. We spoke about written letters. We spoke about engraved letters. Now within engraved letters itself, there's two categories. There's some engraved letters which are only engraved on the surface. So if the rock is, let's say, this thick, we engrave it about this much. Right? Yeah. If you look at the Luchot, the Luchot were engraved through and through. Which is why I made for you a picture here. The Talmud Attractic Shabbos says that there are two letters in the Hebrew alphabet that were a miracle. Why? The black is where it's engraved. If it's engraved completely through and through, how did that middle dot stand? That middle dot should have fallen out. You with me? The Samach and the Mem. The final Mem. Basically, you have to engrave all the way around. And this goes through and through. If you're going to engrave all the way around, what's going to happen with this middle piece? It's got to fall out. So the Talmud tells us that in the tablets, in the Shneil Chotabrit, let's say by the word Mitzrayim, right? What's the last letter of Mitzrayim? Final men. The final men was a miracle. So here we see that the letters were engraved through and through. So now we have three categories of letters. We have the written letter. We have the engraved letter, which is only engraved about that deep. Not through and through. And then we have the through and through. What's the difference between the two levels of the engraved? The ones that it's engraved only on the outer layer of the stone, right? This is the rock and it's only engraved till here. That already is also one with the letter, with the rock, right? There's no two things. There's no letter and rock. So what do we gain by going through and through? It gets deeper than that. You're right, but it gets a little deeper than that. It goes through every level of the rock. That we're going to talk about it after we explain first what it means Kabbalistically. But you're absolutely on the right path. The fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, his most difficult series of teachings was a series that went on for five and a half years. It started on Shavuos in the year 5672. 772 in Hebrew is Ayin Beis, and Chassidim called that Hemshech Ayin Beis. The series of Ayin Beis, 72. Over there he explains things unbelievably. I mean, it's, it's like two and a half books. It's just everything is done beautifully. I mean, he has a parenthesis that's over 100 pages long. A parenthesis. I mean, I mean, you learn that book, you're just like, wow. Over there he explains, he wants to give an example of what the difference between engraved and engraved. Through and through, and just a little bit in depth on the surface and he says to understand this 
understand what's the difference between a signature ring and the, the wax it's stamped in, right? They used to have the signature ring, used to heat up the wax, boom, and that was the, 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 the king's signature ring, right? When it says that Achishverosh gave, gave um, Haman the, the ring, that's what it means. He gave him a signature ring to sign the decree, and later he gave it to Mordechai. Now, in that ring, there's a form, right? The ring has, you push it down, right? Either one, one or two ways, right? Either sticking out or it's deep in. Let's talk about for the deep in for a moment because we're talking about engraved. So what happens is that when you have that ring and you push it down on the wax, the wax is pushed up into that and thus you have on the wax the exact same signature that you have in the ring. What's the difference? The ring, it isn't that there's the ring and there's the form that was put into the ring. The ring is made in such a way that it makes the form. Just give an example, right? If in that ring there's the olive and the base. So it's not that you had metal and you drill out the olive and the base. What happens is you make it in a way, just like when they cast gold, you make it in a way that the ring and the shape is the ring. When you take that ring and you push it onto the wax, now what you're doing is you're having a form make a form. But that's not what's happening with the ring. When the ring is melted and it hardens in that shape, that is the ring. The hole around the olive that makes the olive, that is the ring. Thus in Kabbalah what we're talking about here is that the essence form, which means that the essence expressed itself in a form. Not that there was an imposition of a form on top of an essence. I'm going to go off, off track here for a moment because I'm, I'm looking at the faces. <laughs> you, remember we, you remember we spoke about the opinion that says that the ten emanations, the light has no no shape and no color. I gave the example when we spoke about it of sunlight which is colorless shining through a stained window. So when a colorless light shines through a glass stained window, right? The piece that's red, the light becomes a ray of red light. The green becomes a ray of green light. Can you say that the light became green? Were you able to dissect it, you would be able to say that there's a light on top of it is green. That green piece of glass, what it did was it imposed upon the colorless light the color green. But you can't say that the light, the infinite light is now green. The infinite light clothed itself, manifested itself into a green coloring. What we're saying here with the ring is not that the green covered the light. The light in itself chose to express itself, its entire essence of infinity, to express itself in green. That's the power of the signature ring. In other words, when God said that gefilte fish is kosher and lobster isn't kosher, that's not like the colorless light shining through, okay, this piece of light is kosher, this piece of light is not kosher. No, the mitzvot, in its deepest level is like the signature ring of God. It's not that His will is covered by details, but rather the essence will 
expressed itself in this form. It's not an imposition of a form upon his will. Thus, in the deepest sense, we have to understand what we're saying here, and I'm not sure I understand it. But thus, in the deepest sense, it wouldn't be possible that the gefilte fish should not be kosher and lobster should be kosher. Because if it was a color on top of a light, we can change the color. But if we're saying that that is the essence will of God as a signature ring expressed itself in 613 essence forms, not filters, light itself took a shape. Then you understand that this is the essence will of God. And thus it could never be any different. Thus when we talk about that which you have engraved, that's even greater than the engraving which is just on the surface. Number one, when you engrave only on the surface, you have what we call a clee kibble. It, it has a, an accepting pot. Thus, just hypothetically speaking, you can, you can take that and cover it with cement and now you have no more letters. Number one. Number two, it said in Hasidus that the brilliance of the stone, if it's only this deep in gray, it's not completely through and through, the sparkle of this gem will be diminished. But if it's through and through, it doesn't rebound off anything, it's not diminished. What I'm trying to say here is that there's two types of statutes. The statute that has some type of connection to logic, like the Rambam says that even though it's a statute, we need to understand how we can be better people from this. We need to have some logical touch to this. Those chukim are the engraved only on the surface. Thus they're not completely one. Mystically speaking, that's on top of Atzilut, that's the supernal crown and the primordial man, but it's post-symptom. Familiar with the word symptom? Contraction. When we talk about the letters that are engraved through and through, we're talking about the mitzvot, the way they are pre-symptom. To quote the words of Kabbalah, Golov Galifu B'Tehiru Ilah. Engraved, it was an engraving in the supernal purity. What is the whole point of Tzimtzum? Oh, no, 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 everyone talks about Tzimtzum. If you know the word Tzimtzum, you're already Kabbalah 101. What is Tzimtzum? Sure. No, Tzimtzum is only one thing. Tzimtzum was created to create a paradigm of two instead of one. Tzimtzum created that there's the source, there's the light. There's the vessel, there's the light. There's the creator, there's the creation. Which really isn't true. Because ultimately speaking, God is everything and everything is one. But the symptoms job was to give us a perception of reality of a binary code instead of a unary code. It's to be able to tell me that I am me, Hashem is Shem, and I dive into Hashem. It causes that separation. Thus the way the mitzvot exists pre-symptom, there is no two. There is no God and His will. There is no infinite light and shape and form. This is kosher, this is not kosher. It's all one. Golov galifum b'tehiri law. It was engraved as a signature ring through and through. The one that's post-symptom, even though it's pre-vessel and light, it's still absolute oneness, 
but that's only engraved on the surface. The difference will be what you said. Whether it's through and through or no. If it's not through and through, then it's not everywhere. If it's not everywhere, it's not truly infinite. We'll talk about that in a moment. But now we understand that there's three levels. There's the testimonies and the judgments where there's knowledge. And the knowledge and understanding and the reasoning gets in our way of the hineni. Why do I do this? I can't say that I don't kill only because hineni. I don't kill because Jews don't kill. Humane, not just Jews. Humane people don't kill. But that gets in the way of the hineni. I don't kill hineni. By the way, not to get into this whole conversation right now and start up with the, the whole universe, but one of the clear differences whether not killing is hineni or logical is abortion or mercy death. All of a sudden, is killing right? If killing is not about morality, killing is about God said not to kill, then, then it's a whole different ball of wax. How we approach abortion, how we approach euthanasia. Leave that away because uh, I'm going to start a whole politics here. Let's put that aside right now. But I'm just saying that that concept, that concept of when something makes sense, it taints my hineni. That's the written letters, the ink covering the parchment. And eventually the ink can fall off the parchment. As you know, your tefillin can become non-kosher and you have to fix them. Then you have the engraved letters, but engraved only in the surface. Those are the commandments, the chukim of which Maimonides says, yes, of course they're statutes. Yes, of course they're illogical. But something you got to glean from it. We need to understand. So that's only engraved on the surface. There's the obedience, but there's a touch of reasoning. Then there's the Porah Aduma, which is absolutely illogical by its very definition. A holy offering outside of the temple. Completely burnt, nothing on the altar. The whole point of a sacrifice, mystically speaking, is that the fire of God on the altar consumes the passion of the animal. That's what makes a sin offering a sin offering. That's what makes a sacrifice a sacrifice. Here it's none of the above. Outside of the holy temple, burn it to ashes. And then take those ashes and put it in the water. Thus we now understand that this is the letter that's engraved through and through. This is the pre tzimtzum engraved letters. Goal of Galifum Betehidi Yilah. The engraved was engraved pre tzimtzum. There was no binary. There was no source and light. There was no light and vessel. There was no creator and creation. There was no will of God manifested in outside details. It is the form of the signaturing. What does that mean for the Yid? For the Yid, it means the same thing. When I'm focused on my understanding, the written letters, that's the reasoning. That's limited. When I'm focused on doing a statute, but it also makes sense, that's the engraved on the surface. But when my intellect, knowledge, reasoning, my human ego of understanding is completely knocked out of the arena, now we're talking about the true Pintaliyid. That's where we see the most beautiful part of all of mitzvot. Thus we say, Zot chukata mitzvot. This is the essence of all mitzvot. Another detail. Another detail is 
Another detail is, did you notice that it doesn't say Zot Chukat HaMitzvot? This is the statute of all the commandments. It says Zot Chukat HaTorah. What does the word Torah mean? Torah means teaching. Torah is wisdom. So what does it mean? This is the obedience of the wisdom. From here we see that what God is asking us to do is not only that the action should be one of obedience, the pintal yid screaming out hineni, but even the Torah, even the logic, even the understanding, the engaging intellectually needs to be zot chukat ha-Torah. The obedience. The obedience needs to be the foundation, needs to permeate and saturate the entire wisdom and intellect of the Torah. Thus, it's not when I do the, the mitzvahs I don't understand. Yom Kippur, when I wave the chicken around my head and I don't know what I'm doing and I feel like an idiot. Oh, that's Hineni. But we're studying. Roll up your sleeves, engage. No, even here, it's all about the obedience. How? Here's the kicker. The reason that the testimonies and the judgments make sense, ultimately it's a mitzvah. The definition of a mitzvah is that it's the infinite will of God. The infinite will of God ha can't manifest itself and close itself within the finite intellectual capacity of the human. Thus we now understand that the difference between the chok, which is completely irrational, the judgment, which is completely rational, is only because God willed it to be that the infinite will of judgments should descend in a fashion that I can understand it. Because God wants us to have an inner connection with Him. If the only connection I had with God was that I do what He says, that's an external. That means my mind and heart doesn't have a connection with God. My body has a connection with God. I do what you say. But for my mind and heart to have a connection to God, I need to understand the Torah. I need to feel. Thus God says, it is my will that my infinite will should descend. So there will be those commandments that make sense. So that I can have a relationship with my people also on the intellectual level. So the whole fact that we understand any mitzvah isn't the greatness of our, of our intellectual capacity. It's actually the will of God that we should not be like disconnected robots. Rather, we should truly be able to understand intellectually, feel emotionally. Thus, if that's only because the will of God, so even my studying the Torah, which is so beautiful and so I can appreciate it, is all based on obedience. God, you want me not only to do what you want me to do, you want me to understand what you want me to do so I can have a meaningful relationship with you of intellect and emotions. Hineni, I'll do that too. Thus, what we said before, that the rule has to express itself in all the details. The rule of the red heifer is obedience, absolute obedience. The fact that it says Zot Chukat HaTorah, not Zot Chukat HaMitzvot, this is the statute of the wisdom of Torah, not this is the statute of the commandments. From here we see that God told Moses, 
You have no right to contemplate it, to question it, accept it. That means that now I'm using obedience to guide my mind. Here I'm using obedience to guide my mind not to question. That same God who told me, use your mind here not to question, is the one that told me by the other commandments, you should question, and you should learn, and you should understand. Thus the obedience is on both ends. The obedience controls my action, Hineni, I'm here to do what you want. And the obedience is here to mandate my mind. I will think and understand what you want me to understand the way you want me to understand it. So it's not the ego of the intellect. Let me see if this makes sense. No. If the Torah says it, it's absolute truth. Now God, you've given me the gift that in certain areas, my mind can wrap itself around and digest what you're saying so that I can have a true intellectual connection with you as well. It would have been a very shallow relationship if the only thing we had with God was Hineni. Do this, Hineni. Why? Don't ask, Hineni. So God mandates to us that we should have the obedience not to question what we don't have to question and to accept. And God gave us the obedience to, yes, struggle intellectually to understand everything you could understand. One more level. While, you, while it's not making sense to you, let me add on no. one, one more level of not making sense. In, in, in a moment. Rega, rega, rega. Daka, daka, daka. I'm not running away. Let me just finish one more point. Now let's get to the other point. We said that we have to understand that the, the two levels, this is the quintessential statute of obedience, and this is the Rotsu Yveshuv, the ebb and flow. Now let's put those two together. What is the ultimate ebb and flow that a Jew has with God? The what? The ultimate ebb and flow, Ratsui Veshuv. The ultimate Ratsui is the Pintelayid's obedience. When a Jew says, Hineni, I don't need to work this system out. I'm just here for you. That's the ultimate ebb. And when God tells you, I don't want you only to have the ebb. I want you to work your brain out to understand with your human mind as much as you can of my infinite wisdom in the Torah. That's the flow. When the ebb dominates the flow, it would be so much easier for us to say, you know what, close down all the yeshivas, we don't need to learn anything, just tell us what we have to do and we'll do it. No, that's not what Hashem said. <laughs> Hashem said, yes, I want you to say Hineni, just do it. But then I want you to have the Na'aseh, not just the Nishma. I don't want just the obedience. I want you to work out your brain. You should think like a Jew. You should think like the Torah. Thus you have the Eb, Hashem Hineni. Then you have the flow, Hashem, because of my Hineni, I'm going to sit down now and understand as much as I can understand. Thus you have the ebb and the flow, which is what the statute is all about. Obedience 
to the point of I will obediently study and understand whatever I can understand. So there's obedience of I will do and then there's obedience of I will study. Not that I will study, see if I agree, and if I agree, I will do. No. I will do. And part of my I will do is that I will strenuously study to understand your infinite wisdom, dear God. Let's close it up. In closing. In closing, let us now return to our modern day issue. To have a thorough relationship with God, one in which we can find true peace with ourselves, is to experience both the ebb and the flow of the essence of our souls. To have a thorough relationship with God, we need to engrave deep until we get through and through to the essence of our being, like you said. Because if it's the essence of our being, it's the essence of everything, including my intellects and my emotions. Through and through. To have a thorough relationship with God, we then need to take this essence of our being, that of faith, and spill it over into our mind. And thus we need to have faith and we need to know what we have faith in. Yes, they both have to exist. We have to have a balance. One way of saying this is that we can only believe with absolute faith yesterday. Yesterday, I wasn't that knowledgeable. Today, I learned more. But yesterday, I wasn't able to understand this. I can just say I believe it because the Torah says it. But overnight, I worked and I worked and I worked. Today, I can say I understand what yesterday I was only able to say I believe. Thus, the line between faith and knowledge is a living organism that keeps on moving. That which I could only understand yesterday with the help of God and diligent study, I can understand today. And since I can understand it today, I open up my horizon of faith to unprecedented heights. Okay? Now, however, we must always lay the foundation of faith upon which we build our human edifice of knowing and feeling. We cannot do it the other way around. We cannot have our relationship to God to be the reaction of my knowing and feeling. Because then I'm making God as small as I am. But if I'm able to make my knowing and feeling based upon my faith, I'm, I'm allowing my faculties to be completely thrown into the infinite of God. Okay? The truth is, I just want to say one more thing. In life, not just religion, not just the spirituality, the foundation of all organized religion is Hineni, and now let me understand it. And never get lost in one. Don't ever say Hineni with I'll never want to understand it. Don't ever going to say I'm going to understand it and then I'll say Hineni. It's got to be together. But I want to share with you, it's not just about religion. The success to life is A, be passionate about what you do. B, even when you don't feel passionate, do it anyway. It's both. That's what makes the human being be at peace with themselves and with their life they're living. Thank you.